Well, Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, really just half of verse 13, I'm sorry, verse 14, says the purpose was that the blessing of Abraham would come to the Gentiles by Christ Jesus. That may not be a verse you're very familiar with. It may not be a verse that you spent very much time at all studying through the years, but I believe that that is one of the half dozen most important verses in all of the Bible. The purpose is that the blessing of Abraham would come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus. That verse is important because it really frames the entire biblical narrative. It's important because it summarizes the Bible. It, it points to the fulfillment of all history and it celebrates Christmas. Let, let, let's look at it on the screen and, and just go a word or two at a time. It says that the purpose the purpose, that means the purpose of everything, the purpose of every Old Testament story, the purpose of every sacrifice, the purpose of every message of every prophet, the purpose of every law that we read of in the Bible. Everything has one single purpose. What's that purpose? Well, the verse goes on to say, the blessing of Abraham. What in the world is the blessing of Abraham? Well, uh, we shall learn uh, today what is the blessing of Abraham. That, that the blessing of Abraham would come to the Gentiles. That's me and you, right? We're the Gentiles. The purpose is that the blessing of Abraham would come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus. I want us this morning to look at that and understand it for all it's worth. And I think when we do, it will elevate our appreciation and our worship during the Christmas season like never before. So to begin, we need to connect the Old and New Testaments. Really to understand Galatians 3.14, we have to see the unity between the Old and New Testaments. Now, oftentimes in our minds, I think Christians in and outside the church really see the Old and New Testaments as very separate, as, as almost standalone entities. It's almost as if they describe two different religions. When we read in the Old Testament, we read about the laws and the prophets. We read about wars. We read about sacrifices. We're focused on the temple. But we turn to the New Testament, it's very different. We're, we're reading about Jesus, and we're reading about love, and we're reading about prayer, and, and, and the church, and evangelism. It, it, it can seem, if we're not careful, like two completely different things, but that's not the case. Too many people see the New Testament as this standalone sequel to the Old Testament. Now, sort of like some of the movies that we watch today. Star Wars is in the theaters today, and if you followed the trilogy through the years, and most people have, you know that they made three Star Wars movies, and then they made three more Star Wars movies, and then they're now making three more. The last one's in the theaters now. And so these trilogies are connected to one another in that the newest set of movies references some people and some events that happened in the first six movies. But 
If you didn't watch the first six movies, you can still understand and enjoy the last three, right? They're really standalone movies, a standalone trilogy of movies. And so people think that the New Testament, while it references some things in the Old Testament, you really could understand the New Testament apart from the Old Testament. But I'm telling you that that's just not true. To fully understand all that we see in the New Testament, you have to see these as a unified whole. I think some of the confusion just comes from how we refer to the first part of the Bible and the second part of the Bible. We call it the Old Testament and the New Testament. Those words, by the way, are not biblical words. The Bible doesn't call itself the Old Testament and the New Testament. Those are titles that we've added through the years. And sometimes I think we could have had better titles. We could have called it the beginning and the end. And had we called it that, people would understand that they're connected. We could have called it the setup and the fulfillment or the introduction and the conclusion. Even if we would have called it part one and part two, I think people would see how they are connected and not focus so much on how they are, they are different. So to understand Galatians 3.14, that the purpose is that the blessing of Abraham would come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, we have to see the, the unity of the Testaments. And to do that, we have to have a history lesson. So my goal today, and this will seem ambitious, but we're going to go quickly. My goal today is to start with Genesis 1-1 and move all the way through history until we get to Matthew 1-21. And if we can walk today from Genesis 1-1 to Matthew 1-21, then we will understand Galatians 3-14. Let me tell you those verses. Matthew 1-1, you know that verse. I'm sorry, Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's the beginning. And then Matthew 1.21, you're familiar with that as well. She will give birth to a son and you are to name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Okay, so we're going to let those two verses really bookmark this uh, or bookend this, this period of history from the beginning to the birth of Jesus. And I want you to see how they are connected together. So let's start with Genesis chapter 1. Uh, we, we see in the verse, I should say, in Galatians 3.14, the mention of Abraham, that the blessing of Abraham would, uh, would come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus. So, so here's how we're going to divide up history. We're going to see the things before Abraham, then we're going to see the history of Abraham, then we're going to see what happens after Abraham. So before, during, after, that'll take us right up to uh, the birth of Christ. So before Abraham, what happened from Genesis 1 to Abraham? Well, Genesis 1 and 2 is the creation of the world. Genesis 3, sin enters the world and the consequences of sin. Genesis 4 and 5, we see the population growing and we see sin really setting roots into the population and bringing destruction and division. Then that takes us to Genesis 6. Well, Genesis 6, 7, 8, and 9 is the, the flood. When God judges man for his sin, sends a great flood, everybody dies except for Noah and his family. That takes us through Genesis 9. Then Genesis 10 and 11, everything starts over, but sin is still present. And in just two chapters, sin 
pervades the, the population as it grows, and it's continuing to bring the same destruction and division that we saw before the flood. That brings us to Genesis 14, Genesis 12, rather, and Genesis 12 is where we see Abraham. Now, what have we learned from Genesis 1 to Genesis 12? Well, we've learned that sin is, um, is stubborn, and sin doesn't, uh, doesn't get better, it gets worse, right? Twice now in the history of, 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 of the earth, uh, it, between Genesis 1 and Genesis 12, we see that sin just continues to bring division. We've also seen that God has a standard and God will judge sin. And sin deserves death. We saw that in all of those who died uh, in, in the flood. So now that brings us to Genesis chapter 12, Abraham. Now what do we know about Abraham when we get to Genesis chapter 12? We really just know two things. First, we know that Abraham and his wife are too old to have children. Now, that might not seem important, but it will in a moment or two. That's fact number one. The second thing we know about Abraham is that he was not what you would call a godly man. In fact, he's not called a godly man in Genesis chapter 12 or before. Uh, he certainly was no Noah. The Bible said of Noah that he was a righteous man. It does not say that of Abraham. We can see from the text that Abraham was a liar. We see uh, it, when we go to Joshua chapter 24 and there's a description looking back at Abraham that he was a, an idol worshiping pagan. That's Abraham. Nothing, to, nothing good to say about Abraham at, at the point that Genesis 12 begins. But then something very surprising happens. God speaks to Abraham and gives him a promise. I'm not sure why he chose Abraham. There's nothing that we see in Abraham's life that made him especially worthy of this. In fact, we could find reasons that he would not have been worthy. But God spoke to Abraham and made a promise. And let me read that to you. Genesis 12, 2. We'll show you these verses on the screen because we're going to, this is lightning round through the entire Old Testament. So Genesis 12, 2, God says, I will make you into a great nation I will bless you and I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. Now look at this. This is interesting. God speaks to this man, this uh, uh, idol worshiping pagan, and he makes him this promise. I'm going to make a great nation out of you. That means when your children and your children's children and their children and their children, and eventually your people will be a great nation. And then he says, right at the end of verse 2, that I will make you a blessing. That this great nation will be a blessing to other people. He doesn't say who the other people are at this point, but he says, I'll make you into a great nation, and your nation will be a blessing, will be a blessing to others. Uh, now, what happens next with Abraham? Well, nothing. For a long while, nothing important seems to happen. Uh, after a while, God, I'm sorry, Abraham begins to complain that he doesn't have a son. Uh, he was uh, unable, he and Sarah were unable to have children. And so he said, I'm going to have to make one of my servants, one of my slaves, my heir. Uh, I'm going to have to leave everything to him because I don't have my own son. And so then God reminds him of the promise that God had made. So now we're in Genesis 15, verse 4. Now the word of the Lord came to him, came to Abraham, 
This one will not be your heir. Instead, the one who comes from your own body will be your heir. God says, remember, I promised you, you were going to have a son. Chill out. Don't worry. It's going to happen. The next verse, verse five, he took him outside and said, can you imagine this? Look at the sky and count the stars if you're able to count them. And then he said, your offspring will be that numerous. Took Abraham outside. You got to understand Abraham and his wife, 70s and 80s at this point. So they had wanted to have a child and wanted to have a child. Well, they'd given up except for this weird promise that God said that he's going to have a child and they're going to have a child and it'll be a great nation. And so they've begun to look for other ways. So God brings Abraham outside and says, look at all the stars. He says, your children will be as numerous, your children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren will be as numerous as those stars. Now that was crazy talk, right? For a 70 or 80 year old. Some of you are 70 and 80. What if you decided or discovered today that God had that plan for you? I mean, you would be surprised, right? But then verse six, something happens that stands as the most important thing in all the Old Testament. By far the most important thing, verse six, listen to this, Abraham believed. By the way, his name was Abraham and then it changed to Abraham. I am name challenged. I'm not going to try to manage that through this sermon. I'm just going to call him Abraham. But if you see Abraham in scripture, don't be tripped up. Abraham believed the Lord and he, the Lord, credited it to him as righteousness. Now let's camp there for a moment. That's important. What did Abraham do? Did Abraham go and follow all of the rules? Did he go and make a sacrifice? Did he sing a song? Did he join the church? Did he, what did Abraham do? He just did one thing. He believed God. This was a preposterous promise that God had given, but Abraham said, you know what, God, as impossible as that sounds, I believe you. I have faith in you. And what did God do? This is so important. God took that belief and then he credited it to Abraham's account as righteousness. See, Abraham, like all the rest of us, was separated from God because of his sin. We're sinners. God's perfect and holy, so we're separated from God. So what did Abraham do? He couldn't become perfect, but he could believe in God. And so God says, I will take your belief and I will turn it into righteousness. The word righteousness means a right standing with God. So Abraham all of a sudden has a right standing with God based upon what? based upon his belief, based upon his faith. This is the first time you see this in the Bible. This is very important. We'll come back to it. Well, what happens after that? Well, nothing for a while, a few years go on. Uh, still no babies, no babies. So now Abraham and Sarah, her name was Sarai and it changed to Sarah, but they decided that they would solve this problem on their own. And so Sarah suggested that her husband uh, get with her servant, Hagar, and the two of them make a baby. Now, I don't know if this will surprise you or not, but that didn't work out so well, okay? And, and it caused all kinds of problems, but it did produce a baby. And so Hagar, uh, Sarah's servant, has a baby with Sarah's husband. And the baby's name, the son's name, is Ishmael. And their purpose in that was that if God can't fulfill this promise, 
then we'll just have to help him out a little bit and we'll come up with our own strategy. And, and they did. Ishmael is born. Now, just remember that. We're going to come back to Ishmael in a moment. What happens after that? Well, nothing for a while. Ishmael grows up. There's all kind of tension and drama between Hagar and Sarah, as you can imagine. Uh, and then God speaks again. Genesis 17, 15, and 16, God said to Abraham, as for your wife, Sarah, I will bless her. Indeed, I will give you a son by her and I will bless her. And listen to this. And she will produce nations. Kings of people will come from her. So the promise is given again. I, I'm going to give you a baby through your wife, Sarah. And as I promised, he will be uh, the leader of a great nation and kings will, will come from him. So then they are able to have a child and they're both uh, very old at this time. Uh, but it's a, it's a miracle birth, which is interesting. It's not a virgin birth, but it's a miracle birth. And it points to another miracle birth that we'll get to in a few minutes. And so Isaac is born and Isaac becomes the child, the son through whom God is going to do uh, these, uh, fulfill these promises. So the, the child is, is, is Isaac. And we'll come back to that. But, but I mentioned Ishmael a moment ago. There's something important to know, to know about Ishmael. Now what happened to this son that Abraham had by his servants? Well, in Genesis 21, 12 through 13, it says this. God said to Abraham, I will also make a nation of the slave's son because he is your offspring. So God said to Abraham, I'm, I will make a, I'll also make a, a great nation uh, uh, from, from Ishmael. So Ishmael becomes the father of the Ishmaelites, group of people that do not exist today. Uh, but he becomes, just as it was prophesied, the, the leader of a great nation. Now, we're going to come back to Genesis in a moment. But let us fast forward 2,600 years from then. And, and then we'll come back. So 2,600 years later, in Medina, uh, in Saudi Arabia, there was, a, um, there was a young man by the name of Muhammad. And Muhammad was illiterate, but he made friends with some Jews who taught him the Old Testament. And when they were teaching him the Old Testament, they got to this passage in uh, the book of Genesis, and he learned that Abraham had two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. And when he heard that, he in his mind believed that that confirmed some folklore that existed amongst the people of Medina and Saudi Arabia at the time. Let me share with you that, that folklore. Uh, first of all, that Ishmael had migrated to Saudi Arabia after the split between Ishmael and Isaac when they were young, that Ishmael had moved to Saudi Arabia uh, and lived in the area uh, later called Mecca. It was also a part of their folklore that Abraham from time to time would go to where Ishmael was and visit with him because he missed his firstborn son. And it's also... Uh, a part of their folklore at that time, that on one of those visits that Ishmael and Abraham rebuilt an ancient shrine 
uh, that had originally been built by Adam, like Adam and Eve Adam. And they rebuilt this shrine and it is in uh, what is called Mecca today. I can show you a picture of it. Uh, we, called it we call it today the Kaaba. It's the most visited religious site in the world. And it supposedly, by, uh, by uh, the testimony of Muhammad, uh, it, is the, it is a rebuilt shrine. It's inside that building. That's, they don't show us pictures of the actual shrine, but it's inside that building. And, and it supposedly is what uh, Ishmael and Abraham rebuilt that was originally uh, built by, uh, by Adam. Now, when Muhammad uh, learned that, and at least in his mind, he connected the Bible story of, of Isaac and Ishmael with this folklore, uh, which I, I don't believe there was a, a real connection there, but in his mind, he connected those two. He then declared that Abraham was the greatest prophet ever, and while what he meant by that changed over the next few years of his life, that became the genesis of Islam, no pun intended. So now here's why that's important. Do you realize that the three great religions in the West, uh, Judaism, Islam, and Christianity, all point back to Abraham as the father of their faith. That, that, this, that this Abraham believing the promise and God crediting his belief as righteousness, a right standing with God, all three religions point back to that as the beginning of their faith. The Jews would say that, the Muslims would say that, the Christians say that. In fact, Romans 4.24 says that Abraham is the father of our faith. So we all get that right. The point at which the religions digress is how then, pardon me, how then the promise that went along with that gets fulfilled, I will make you a blessing to all nations. So let's see how that, let's go back to Genesis and pick up with the story and see how the promise is, is fulfilled. When we get back to Genesis, we have Abraham and his son Isaac. A few years later, uh, God tells Abraham to take Isaac and sacrifice him as an offering. Odd thing, it seems to go against what God had said previously, but Abraham was obedient. So you know the story, Abraham and Isaac march up a mountain as God had instructed. Uh, Abraham is prepared to offer Isaac as an offering. God steps in, stops the sacrifice, provides a substitute. There's much we can learn from that, and we've preached on that before. But then God says something to Abraham that at this point would have been a very familiar refrain. Listen, he says, I will indeed bless you. This is Genesis 22. I will indeed bless you and make your offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky and the sand of the seashore. Your offspring will possess the city gates of their enemies and all the nations, notice that, all the nations of the earth will be blessed by your offspring because you have obeyed my command. Now Abraham would have had no idea what all the nations meant. Abraham probably could have only named two or three nations. But God makes this promise that through your offspring, I am going to bless 
all the nations. Now, notice we've got the word Abraham and the word blessings. You're still thinking about Galatians 3, 14, that, uh, that the purpose of it all is that the blessing of Abraham would come to the Gentiles through Christ. So here we see another reminder that God's moving through history and he says, the blessing I'm going to give you is that all the nations will be, will be blessed through your offspring. Then history marches on. I'll, I'll go through this very quickly. God rescues the Israelites from Egypt. You know that story in the book of Exodus. And that shows that God is a promise keeper. Uh, God gives the law to Israel after that to show Israel that God has a standard and that God demands a punishment. God demands a blood sacrifice when his standard is violated. God gives them the sacrificial system for that purpose as well. And then God's hand is on Israel throughout the Old Testament in, in surprising ways. I'll, I'll take a moment and just share a couple of those. In Isaiah chapter 7, so a chapter that you, you may be familiar with a couple of verses, but, but not, not one of those storylines in the Bible that, we, that we're super familiar with. But in, in Isaiah chapter 7, Judah, which is the southern, king, southern kingdom of what used to be called Israel, is in a battle with the northern kingdom and another country called Aram. And everything is falling apart for Judah. And their king, who was a wicked king, but he was the king, his name was Ahaz, he's, um, he's just going crazy because he's going to lose this battle. He knows he's going to lose this battle. His nation is going to be destroyed. And so God tries to bring him comfort. Let me just read some of this from Isaiah 7. It says, Then the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, Ask for a sign from the Lord your God, and it, will, it can be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz replied, I will not ask. I will not test the Lord. God says, I'm in control, Ahaz. My plan is marching on. I'll prove it to you. Ask me to do something, and let me show you my power. And Ahaz says, I'm not interested in you, because Ahaz was not interested in anything God had to say. And, and, and then here's the response from God through Isaiah. Isaiah said, listen, house of David, it is not enough for you to try the patience of men. Will you also try the patience of my God? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. He says, I'm going to give you a sign anyway. See, the virgin will conceive and have a son, and his name will be Emmanuel. God says in the midst of the, what it seemed like Israel falling apart, and there was going to be no more Israel. There was going to be no more family of Abraham. God says, no, I'm still in control. And in fact, there's going to be a son conceived of a virgin, and his name will be Emmanuel, God with us. And then just a few chapters later, Isaiah 9, verse 6, God elaborates on the promise. He says, for a child will be born for us. A son will be given to us. And the government will be upon his shoulders, and he will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. God says even as the nation seems that it's going to completely fall apart, and there would be no more, no more Jews, no more Judaism, no more family of Abraham. I mean, most of the nations, all of the nations of that time are gone. Where are the Ish Ishmaelites today? They're gone. There are no more. So it seemed like the Jews were going to be just like those, but God says, no, my plan's still going, going on. The Jews continued to repel, rebel, so God allows the Babylonians to come in and bring punishment to the Jews. 
The Babylonians come in, they wipe out nearly all of the Jews. They take the rest of the Jews that they didn't kill, and they take them 800 miles away to what we would call modern-day Iraq. Now, at that point, if, if you would have been a fair uh, historian or commentator on, uh, on, on how societies work, you'd say, well, that's the end of the Jews because they've now been either killed or scattered hundreds of miles from their, from their homeland. But if you know the Bible story, you know that then there's Ezra and then there's Nehemiah and they lead the Jews back from Iraq, from Susa, all the way back to Israel and the nation is is reconstituted. That has never happened. And now it's repeatedly happening in the Old Testament. Well, then the Greeks and the Romans rule that part of the world. And they, they, the, the Greeks and then the Romans, they crush everybody. They crush these civilizations so that there, there weren't all these individual uh, civilizations. It was just the Romans, except for the Jews. For some reason, they were allowed to, uh, to hold on to their, to their identity. In fact, the Romans even rebuilt and expanded the temple so that the Jews could carry on their religion and reject the religion of the Romans so that the Jews could sacrifice and continue to worship God in this, in this way that was so odd to the Romans. And the Romans stopped every other kind of worship, but they for some reason, allowed the Jews to, to continue on. And then there was the Pax Romana. You ever heard that word? There, there was this unusual period in the history of, of the world, 200 years, 210 years, where there was, in the Western world anyway, just complete peace. Roads were being built. The Romans ruled with, a, with an iron fist. There were, there were no big rebellions because of the peace throughout the empire, uh, people were able to travel, people were able to communicate, uh, people were able to take information from one part to the other unhindered. Uh, there, was a, there was a common language uh, that, that covered really the, that, that whole half of the, of the world. It, it's called Koine Greek, and it's the language of our New Testament, and it, it allowed Information, for the first time in the history of the world, it allowed information to be quickly disseminated. And so then, God said, it's time. Matthew 1.20, after he had considered these things, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit, and she will give birth to a son, and you're to name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And so now we see that through Jesus, we see now how our faith can become righteousness because God was born through Jesus into the world, lived a perfect, sinless life. The Bible says he came to save his people from their sins. And the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that God then made him to be sin for us so that we might have the righteousness of God. And the promise to Abraham was fulfilled. What was that promise? That all the nations of the earth will be blessed by your offspring. All the way back, that's what was in God's heart and mind. When he made that promise to Abraham, I will make you a great nation, and your seed 
will be a blessing to all of the nations. What is that? That's Jesus, born in a manger. Listen, Romans, I'm sorry, Galatians, we, we just go back to it. Galatians 3.14. The purpose, the purpose of everything was that the blessing of Abraham, that our sins could be forgiven through Jesus. The blessing of Abraham, that through Abraham, the seed would be a blessing to all people. The blessing of Abraham would come to the Gentiles by Christ Jesus. Now that teaches us two lessons. First of all, God has a plan and keeps his promises. Isn't this amazing that for all of these thousands of years, history marched on, and it seemed over and over like the nation of Israel was to be snuffed out and, and that, the, that the Jewish people were to be no more. But God's plan never faltered. And when the perfect time came, God sent Jesus so that he could save his people from their sins. Hey, sometimes our lives seem like they're falling apart. Know this, that God has a plan for you and that God's plan will go on and God's promises will be kept. We have that assurance. But then the second thing that that teaches us that's even more important, our God exchanges faith for righteousness. We see it all the way back to Abraham. He believed God, it was credited to him as righteousness. How does a person come to know Christ today? How does a person how can a person be right with God today? The same way. All of history was so that God would show us how he exchanges faith for righteousness. And if we will put our faith in what God has done through Jesus, that he lived a perfect life and he died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins, and we surrender to him, putting our faith in him, then what was said to Abraham will be said to us that your belief, your faith, will be credited as righteousness. You know, at Christmas, there are a lot of things that distract us from the true message. There's, uh, there are gifts, and there are family gatherings, and there are celebrations and parades. No, nothing wrong with any of those things. But let us remember, it's not Christmas if it's not about Jesus. It's not a Christmas service if it's not about Jesus. It's not a Christmas sermon if it's not about Jesus. And the whole point of everything is that through history, God's making possible our salvation because he's sending to us Jesus. Just so your head bowed and eyes closed. Father, I pray that Someone here today that may need to put his or her faith in Jesus will recognize how through history you have been working to make this possible. It was a promise to Abraham, your, your faith will be credited to you as righteousness, but it is, it is a reality in Jesus. And you have marched history forward step at a time so that today, me, a Gentile, that I can know that blessing and have that assurance if I put my faith in you. Father, I pray that all across this, uh, this room this morning and, and those who watch online and on television, that they will be drawn by Christ to put their trust and faith in him, to surrender to him, 
so that they can have the righteousness of God. And Father, I pray that our Christmas, our Christmas celebrations as a family and as a church will be so focused on Jesus because he is the fulfillment of 4,000 years of you working in order to bring the blessing of Abraham to us that we might be right with you. Help our focus today to be 100% on Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. I wanna ask you to stand. We're just gonna spend about 10 minutes celebrating Jesus. Can we do that? As a church, let's do it.